According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, picking up where we were a week ago. We're talking about the promises, and we want to not be slugs. In verse 12, it says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we have the example, Abraham, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And so we have to study this and evaluate for ourselves how patient do we need to be and how long does this take and when when do we receive the promise in time and when do we receive the promise in eternity? And are we, are we content with having portions uh, that are applied in time but the bulk of which actually waits for eternity? And whatever... Uh, descendants that Abraham had while he was still living, of course, are dwarfed by the descendants he had now after he has departed. And yet the blessings that he will have for all eternity in the resurrection, uh, they are what they are. And so we want to understand these. We also want to study the uh, point of swearing under oath. And why is it that we put our hand on a Bible and raise our right hand and say, so help me God. And if you are God, what do you say? So help me me. I mean, what do you say? You cannot swear by anyone higher than yourself, and so you swear by yourself, is what God did. And the God who cannot lie put himself under oath. That's powerful. And so uh, this is what we're going to be addressing here today. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer so we can evaluate ourselves, we can gauge our preparedness in humility to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessings we have to assemble in ourselves. No one here is worthy. Who are we to receive this instruction? And yet in Christ, we have every worthiness. We have his worthiness imputed to our account. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so on that name and on that basis, we stand before you today and we request yet again, that you manifest your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Bless our time of study today, Father. Feed us, equip us, bless us. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so um, this is actually quite marvelous, and we're thankful that we have this because the warning was pretty severe, and yet to follow up the warning with a statement of confidence, such as in verse 9, that we are convinced of better things concerning you. That's, it's good to read that. And I imagine that the readers of this epistle were happy that the author of Hebrews uh, expressed that kind of confidence and that kind of persuasion. Uh, and so uh, that confidence is good in verse 9. We are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. And yet, in verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And how powerful does hope become 
when hope is not just a reality, but it is a fully realized, a fully assured realization. As we see here, to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And so that's where we process it. That's when we embrace it. And uh, so a week ago, we were dealing with that. I just want to bring it back up again before we move on. What does it mean by a full assurance of hope? What does it mean by a full assurance of the gospel, a full assurance of understanding, a full assurance of faith? We have this expression elsewhere throughout the New Testament. A full assurance is a totally realized and personally absorbed thing. Whether it's the gospel, whether it's hope, whether it's faith or whatever it is, the full assurance of that. That's the assurance is is where it gets subjective. It's where it gets personalized. It's where you are apprehending it. See, truth is truth whether we apprehend it or not. (laughs) Reality is reality even if we deny it. But when we embrace reality and when we absorb it, when we personally realize it, we have what the Scripture is describing here as the full assurance. And sometimes we get that without our our, uh, earthly eyes even being able to see it. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so by faith, we can have a a total realization and a personally absorbed doctrine, even if in in earthly terms, we don't quite see it yet. And so this is is what we deal with here in the book of Hebrews. So uh, we're taking the objective reality and we're making it a subjective realization. When reality becomes realization, then the objective has become subjective in our uh, personal absorption. So hopefully we've got that. And then um, faith and long-suffering carry us day by day to the received inheritance. The received inheritance. So don't be a slug. Be an imitator of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. The neat thing about looking to the Old Testament for our example is that we have them as an example, and we have so much more. We have divine provision they never had. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have divine empowerment. We have a Greek canon as well as a Hebrew canon to live off of. We have every advantage. You know, when Paul talks about what advantage has the Jew, great in every respect, that's only until such time as the New Testament is then revealed. Because the bride of Christ has an advantage over the Jew that is astronomical beyond the advantage that Israel had over the Gentiles. See, we want to be clear on that. God ultimately bestows uh, special blessings in time and special blessings in eternity. We will receive the inheritance, and if we have a deposit now, we get all of it then. And so we want to be clear on that. They did receive the inheritance. He did receive the promise. Verse 15 is a completed action on Abraham's part. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He lived long enough to see the birth of Isaac. Now, he didn't see the birth of Jacob. He didn't see the descendants of Jacob. He didn't see the tribes. He didn't see the the real seed of of, of Abraham's promise is in Christ. And Abraham saw that by faith, okay, which Jesus spoke of when he was talking to uh, the Pharisees. So this is what we deal with there. All right. Moving on then to verses 13 through 18. When God, and this is maybe the largest chunk ever combined. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's the point. There's no higher power to swear before when you are the higher power, when you are the supreme being of the universe. And yet he does so. 
saying, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. We have the God who cannot lie, but he takes himself under an oath. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Verse 16 then expands the explanation. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. That's just how it works. That's how it worked in the ancient world and even somewhat in modern times. But I think we've lost a lot of our sense of urgency on this. The idea of a vow, the idea of an oath. Well, you know, get a good enough lawyer, you can undo that too. Okay. And uh, well, yeah, okay. We had a non-disclosure agreement, but we can work on that too. Let's just get a different lawyer and let's, you know, the idea of an oath and the idea of swearing an oath. Um, it was a fearsome thing in uh, the ancient world, and even up until fairly recently, I say the last, say, two centuries ago, in the founding of our nation, the reverence that our founding fathers had before the Creator God of the universe. So that when you take a vow before that God, you're actually inviting Him to apply justice. You're inviting Him to pour forth His wrath if you besmirch His name. You're calling the God of truth to witness. And then you're lying about it? You're calling the God of truth the witness to back up your lie? God of truth isn't going to stand for that. And so you're inviting that kind of a judgment. And uh, for the pagans and their false gods, swearing by Zeus or by Jupiter or by Tautetus or whatever, they, you know, the, the Babylonians swearing by their, their gods, had a very real fear that, uh, that, that if they defy their gods, then they... They're subject to the wrath of those gods. And so uh, swearing by one greater than them, it's, it's considered the end of every dispute. It closes the argument, right? So it's designed that by making that statement, we're done talking about this now. Because I, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, we get these idioms, right? And they're so, I mean, the, the, the true sense of them is totally lost. A little kid on the playground said, Diddy, I cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Who does that? Okay. And yet, the, the, the basis of that, of that Diddy, the basis of, the, of, the, of the, the, the sing-song kind of thing, has a grounding in the, the, the oaths that were taken in the ancient world. So, God does this. He submits to this. He does this as an exercise to put him to, to double it up. To double, how do you double infinity? Well, God just did it. So, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs, the, pro, uh, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath. As if God saying it is not enough. Thus saith the Lord should end the dispute. But thus saith the Lord under oath doubles it. Right? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. So he desires even more. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's the first point. And then he puts himself under oath. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. If, if veracity is not sufficient, <laughs> well, he just doubled it. 
So he put himself under an oath, swearing by his name, staking his own existence, his own integrity on his own standing. And so we have strong encouragement. It's just, it's like when I go to John 10 and I, I define eternal security and I show you the omnipotent hand of Jesus Christ that holds on to us and, and no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. And then the omnipotent hand of God the Father who also holds on to us and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And it goes on to say that I and the Father are one. But if you look at that passage sometime and look at that, see the hand of Jesus Christ omnipotently holding you secure. Eternal security. The omnipotent hand of Jesus Christ is holding you, as well as the omnipotent hand of God the Father is holding you. So think of that as double omnipotence, right? It's like infinity times two, which mathematicians tell me I'm crazy for using this term, but okay. The Father is infinite, the Son's infinite, they're both holding me secure. So if I'm going to lose my salvation, what do I got to do? I've got to overcome double omnipotence. Wow, that makes me impressive. Okay? And actually, if I've got the kind of sovereignty, if I've got the kind of uh, bobnipotence, if, if, uh, if I have the bobniscience that's smarter than God's omniscience, and the bobnipotence that's able to overpower God's omnipotence, okay? What would the third one then would be bobnipresence. But if I've got that, if, if, if bobnipotence can overpower double omnipotence, well then, why do I even need a Savior? I can save myself. Right. So the, uh, the concept here holds true. Here's a God who cannot lie, and he's taking an oath. I love this. This is, this is powerful. So humans, lower creatures, humans make oaths by calling higher powers to bear witness often staking their lives or their souls on the matter. And to show you how serious this is, Jesus himself, he remained silent before his accusers until, until the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. And being adjured by the living God, he could not remain silent. He had been placed under oath before the presence of the living God, and he testified. So we'll, we'll get to that. But first, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this. Some of these are, are well-known. Some of these are not so well-known. Um, you could probably find better examples anyway. But 1 Kings 18. And uh, I really hope this is on video. I want to see this chapter when we get to heaven. Get one of those deleted scenes DVDs where we get to replay some of the some of the uh, things that we just get glimpses in the Bible. Elijah um, had a pretty amazing ministry. I think it involved either teleportation or super speed or something. He he would pop from place to place very rapidly. Um, either running like flash super fast or, or just teleporting from place to place or whatever he's doing. And so when the king sends out an arrest warrant, that's hard to execute against a guy like that, okay? And I've got a law enforcement background, but I can't imagine executing an arrest warrant on a guy that can teleport. What do you do? How do you track him down? Where was he last seen? Well, why do I think he's still there? And um, 
And so, as you look at this, um, let's see, verse 7, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, this is not the book of Obadiah, it's, but it's a servant. Uh, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said, it is I. Go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He's like, he's turning himself in. He's, he says, all right, I'm going to present myself to the king. And so Obadiah replies, what sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? If I go tell Ahab that, he's going to chop off my head. You're messing with me. As the Lord your God lives, and there's our vowing. Look at that. As the Lord your God lives. Notice that. And God himself uses that phrase repeatedly. As I live, saith the Lord. As I live. Well, the God who cannot die. <laughs> so first of all, the God who cannot lie takes an oath. And then the God who cannot die stakes that oath on his life. By saying, as I live, declares the Lord. Which is permission to kill me if I'm lying to you. This is amazing. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or the nations swear that they could not find you. So he's putting those other nations under oath, saying he's not here, he's not here. We've got an arrest warrant for Elijah and the king of this neighboring kingdom said he's not in my kingdom, swearing under oath. And now you're saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. This is the teleportation I was talking about, the Holy Spirit transport. It's like better than Scotty beam me up, the Holy Spirit beam me up and drop me to these other places, right? The Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. And um, has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid 300 prophets of the Lord by 50s in a cave, provided them with bread and water? Man, what a movie that would make. Watch the work of Obadiah here in rescuing these prophets from Jezebel. And now you're saying, go, say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives... Before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went. That's all it took. When Obadiah heard Elijah utter this under oath, as the Lord lives, boom, the prophet Yahweh is not going to name the name of Yahweh and be lying about it. He's going to turn in himself to uh, Elijah. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And... Uh, there you go. So that's 1 Kings 18. Uh, Jeremiah 12, another example. Jeremiah 12, 16. Hmm. So... Um, some of these guys were swearing by the Lord. Some of these guys were swearing by Baal. That's not good. And uh, 
So verse 14, thus says the Lord concerning my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I'm about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. And it will come about that after I have uprooted them, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance, each one to his land. Israel is the only earthly nation that has a promise that uh, if they get destroyed as a nation, sixth cycle of discipline, they can be restored and brought back because he's made eternal promises to the Jewish people. Then verse 16, if they really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. You're going to swear by Baal, you're going to swear by Yahweh. You know, think about Joshua. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Which gods are you going to serve? Which gods are you going to swear by? Often staking their lives or their souls on the matter. 1 Samuel 17, 55. 2 Samuel 11, 11. Two good examples of this. 1 Samuel 17, the David and Goliath chapter. And uh, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. That, that expression, by your life, O king, I do not know. That's, a, that's an oath. That's a vow. He's staking the truthfulness of his statement on the king's life, the king that he's sworn to protect second uh, samuel 11 11 uriah said to david remember david had already committed his adultery with bathsheba bathsheba's pregnant uriah is away to war and so king david has to arrange for a three-day pass bring uriah back home trying to cover his tracks, trying to get Uriah to go home to Bathsheba, trying to get Uriah to, to, to sleep with his wife so that when she does have the baby, Uriah will think it's his. And then, uh, but Uriah didn't go home. Uh, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house in verse 9 with all the servants of his Lord, did not go down to his house. And so Uriah is, 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 is in full public view. Uriah knows that, all the servants know it. So the servants tell David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. <laughs> and David knows he has a problem. The servants know David has a problem. And David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Wow. <laughs> and by using this strong language, by the life of David and by the life of his own soul, this conversation's over. You know, it's, it's, this, is, this is the end of the debate. He has vowed, and this, this is, he's not going to change his mind. David is uh, in trouble because Bathsheba's pregnant, and Uriah knows it's not him. So, um, anyway, we see uh, what these oaths are like. And uh, the example of Jesus is, like I say, it's noteworthy. Matthew 26. 
curious to me, of course, when we get into the New Testament, we get into the church age, by the way, Jesus recommends we don't take any oath. That we just let our yes be yes, let our no be no, that we are in Christ, we are a heavenly people, the royal family of God, and we ought to express ourselves as God expresses his, Himself in the veracity of our statements as a reflection of the veracity of His statements, and, uh, and so forth, in any event. So Jesus is uh, on trial, and He's staying silent, He's fulfilling Scripture, of course, He's going to be of the silent sheep before his shearers. He's going to go to his own death. He's submitting to the will of God in this chapter. And yet, um, they keep trying to get him to say something. But he keeps staying silent. And they even get these liars to come forward and, and give false testimony. But it was hard. They, they kept contradicting themselves too. And um, But finally, in verse 62... The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. This is like a third person oath. You're not taking it yourself, but you're forcing somebody else under these oath conditions. I adjure you by the living God. You tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And and that's powerful. That kind of an oath? And it's the high priest putting him under oath? So Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he had the title for Christ. He had the title for Son of God. He left out the title Son of Man. So Jesus adds that and uh, replies under this, under this vow. So the high priest thinks he's won. He, he's so convinced this is his, uh, you know, Perry Mason moment in the courtroom, right? Aha! He said it himself. Your honor, he's guilty. So the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? He claimed to be God. Well, it's not blasphemy if he's God. All right. So this is the idea of an oath. And it's a pretty serious business. Now, there's no higher power for God to call upon, yet he, the God who cannot lie, swore an oath by his own name, by his own name. And we've already studied this too, by the way, back when we were talking about chapter three, about the the rest, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Remember that? He swore in his wrath, the uh, wrath of God that provoked the statement that he made. Anyway, we, you can go back through your notes and find that in, uh, in chapter 3 and verse 11. There is no higher power for God to call upon, yet he, the God of, who cannot lie, swore an oath by his own name. He did the same thing, by the way, in Genesis 22. He swore by his name. He does so repeatedly. Isaiah 45, 23, Jeremiah 22, 5, Jeremiah 49, 13. Swearing by his own, his own name, his own integrity. It's part of what we evaluated when we tried to find a biblical definition of omnipotence. Not that God can do anything, because there are things God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. He cannot deny himself. He cannot act contrary to his nature. He cannot deny his own name. The name, the reputation, the I am self-existence of God. 
And so uh, these are the things we, we deal with in our systematic theology courses. We talk about God and His name. Are we familiar with these verses? Genesis twenty-two sixteen. This is Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain and uh, willing to sacrifice his son. And then the provision, God will provide himself, the lamb. And so this place is called Jehovah Jireh. And verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. That's why we have these different descriptions. That's why if you ever break it down, you understand the Abrahamic covenant is also an oath. It's also a statute. And it's described that way. Go to Psalm 105 and you'll see the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath that he swore to Isaac, the statute that he gave to Jacob. That he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Israel who has promised these blessings to a thousand generations of those who love him. And it's put in those terms. Okay? Takes us into some deep, deep things. But by myself I have sworn. By myself. He can't say, you know, by Jupiter, by George, by Jove, by, you know, the goofy expressions we have. My dad used to always say, by George, all the time, which never made any sense to me, but okay. By George. By, uh, who do you swear by when you are the supreme being of the universe? Yourself. Yourself. And that's what he does. And we relate to that. Isaiah 45, 23. Back when we were teaching Isaiah one chapter per Sunday, flying through 66 chapters in 66 weeks. Uh, Some of these were pretty hard chapters to do this with because you reach a concept like Jeremiah 45 and you just want to stop and say, can we spend six months on this? There is just so much. When he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You like finding Old Testament gospel messages? This is a pretty good one. Okay. And this is one too where in the uh, angelic conflict, he's taunting his adversaries. He's taunting the fallen angels, those bozos that think they could be like him. Okay. These frauds. Verse 18 says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, did not create it tohu wabohu, but he formed it to be inhabited. Earth was not created tohu wabohu. It became tohu wabohu in Genesis 1-2, but it wasn't created that way in Genesis 1-1. I am the Lord, there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. You know, didn't have this obscure little oracle of Delphi to climb up a mountain to reach it and whatever. He lived among them. He sent His glory to their midst. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. 
Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. So they've got these idols, they've got these gods, they've got Jupiter and Zeus and all these gods, and they've got uh, Marduk and whoever else. And they have these idols that they have to carry around from place to place. That's impressive. Okay? And they swear by those gods. They take their vows and their oaths in the name of whoever, Nebo and Bel. These guys are bowing down. But God then taunts them and He says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. He invites all the fallen angels to go ahead and cooperate on a group project and they can't do it even if they all pool their combined wisdom. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? You know, utter what you want to utter, but the plan of God's already been uttered. The divine decree has gone forth. Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Who's the word? Jesus Christ. To me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. All right. Anyway, he swears by his own name. Jeremiah 22, 5. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. And every time Jeremiah went and preached to the king, he just got more mad. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Do not mistreat, do no, do no violence to the stranger, or the orphan or the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. See, secular authority, political authority is designed to be subject to God's authority and should be operating on the basis of righteousness and justice. But, if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. And this is what happens. The desolation hits. The judgment upon Jerusalem. I swear by myself. Alright. The um, uh, Let me just get a little bit more here. Um, Thus says the Lord concerning the house of the kings of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. Yet most assuredly, I will make you like a wilderness, like cities which are not inhabited. For I will set apart destroyers against you, each with his weapons. They will cut down your choicest cedars and throw them on the fire. Many nations will pass by this city. They will say to one another, 
Why has the Lord done this to this great city? See, it's instructive. He's teaching. And they will answer, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. See, the Gentiles are going to figure it out before the Jews do. (laughs) That the discipline they're under is because they rejected Yahweh, the Lord their God. Anyway, so they're bowing down to other gods. They're swearing oaths to other gods. Jeremiah 49, 13. Again, swearing by himself. Jeremiah 49, 13. Verse 12 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, those who were not sentenced to drink the cup will certainly drink it. And are you the one who will be completely acquitted? You will not be acquitted, but you will certainly drink it. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become perpetual ruins. All right, well, that's not good. So no higher power for God to call upon. So what does he do, you know? And I mean, think about it. There's no no higher power to claim. So he swears by his own name. When he magnifies his word in accordance with his name, that's a big deal. Someone accuses you of Bibleolatry because of whatever. They say you've got a a fanatical devotion to the Bible. You've You've got a fanatical idolatry of the Bible. And it's Bibleolatry. And, uh, and they convince you, or they try to convince you anyway, that your version of Christianity is flawed because you're worshiping the Bible and you're not worshiping God. And they miss the point that God himself has magnified his word in accordance with his own name. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. That's what we worship. And so, yes, do we worship the Bible? Of course, because it's the word of God and we're commanded to. It has authority over me like God has authority over me. In any event, it does make for a, an interesting circumstance. So this powerful truth has already been seen in Hebrews when God swore in his wrath that the Exodus generation would not enter into rest. I mean, all he has to do is say it and it's true. It's going to ha- you know, that, that generation will die in the wilderness. But he says it and then he swears in his wrath. It was the anger that provoked him to take the oath that he took when they rebelled against him at Kadesh Barnea. The consequences of such an intensive guarantee equip the heirs of promise to totally realize and personally absorb future glory in present time. Try to use that same language that we were using previously. Because it's the same language here. We would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And it's set before us and we should take hold. It's set before us. We should embrace it. We should totally realize and personally absorb this living hope, this future glory in present time. This is the marvelous intersection of holding fast and drawing near. And it's throughout the book of Hebrews. Again and again and again, we have the admonishments to hold fast, to draw near. And I think the intersection of hold fast and draw near is this principle right here. We have this steadfast hope. 
we have this assurance. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge. What does that mean? That means that's the hill we choose to die on. That means that's where we stash ourselves. That's where we plant ourselves. We go there, we stay there. This is our refuge. Come what may, this is where it's going to happen. I'm going to stand fast in this refuge. The marvelous intersection of holding fast and drawing near throughout the book of Hebrews. And so we have such things. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's beyond anything an Old Testament believer ever dreamed of. And these guys would get that. These guys being former priests would get that. They would understand the oath. They would understand the covenant. They would understand the procedures involved in their Levitical priesthood. And they would see the surpassing greatness of this for the church age saints, for those that are functioning in a priesthood after the victory of Jesus Christ at Calvary. What a power. Not only for us in the church age, but the application this is going to have for the tribulational uh, martyrs as well. Those that get saved after the rapture, those 144,000, everyone that they lead to Christ, those guys are going to be engaged in a, in a priestly function of prayer. They're going to be praying without ceasing while that Antichrist is reigning upon this earth. And the advantages they're going to have calling upon the Lord so as to be saved in a, in a tribulational context Holding fast, drawing near. It's throughout the book of Hebrews. 3, 6, 4, 16, 6, 18. Chapters we haven't gotten to yet. 7, 19, and 25. 10, verse 1 and 22. Hold fast, draw near. Again and again and again. What is our privilege to do? Hebrews 3, 6. I must have turned to this page a lot because i got a big tear on my paper. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Remember, this is not the language of if that determines whether we stay saved or lose our salvation. This is the language of if which determines whether or not we're going to operate in our priestly function as the house of God. Are we going to be believer priests in our Melchizedek priesthood and operate with Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession? Because if we don't hold fast to that confession, we're no longer operating as the household of God. We're no longer operating as the the priesthood He's designed for us to operate as. We're still saved. We're going to go to heaven when we die. But we're no longer the functionally operative household of God, the temple of the living God. We taught that. Review your notes there in chapter 3 and you'll see that again. The house here is the spiritual house, is the temple in which we function as living stones with our Savior, the chief cornerstone. If you don't hold that fast, give up on your temple service. See, conditional upon our holding fast. 4.16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Are we, are we approaching that throne of grace with fear and trepidation? Are we sneaking in behind the veil as if we don't belong there? Are we marching right on in because we do belong there? We have every right to be there. We're Melchizedek priests in Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our confession. We come with boldness. Let us draw near with boldness, confidence, 
to the throne of grace. Not just the mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat, the throne of grace, something Aaron never stood before. Aaron stood before a mercy seat and he smeared blood on it once a year. Aaron never got past the mercy seat to approach the throne of grace like you and I approach the throne of grace. He couldn't have. It requires the victory at Calvary. It requires the, the, the victor seated at the Father's right hand. It requires the once and for all sacrifice to have been made and the Father's propitiation. Only then can believer priests in Christ approach the throne of grace. And we get to do so boldly to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 6.18 is our passage today. Two unchangeable things. We have encouragement. We have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. We were discussing during the break why evolutionists and why these other folks, they've got, they have more faith based on less evidence <laughs> than we have. You know, we have good evidence. We've got amazing evidence. We've got a God who cannot lie, who put himself under oath. That's pretty good evidence. I'll accept that. That's admissible in court, right? My court. I, I find it persuasive. I find the evidence of the resurrection persuasive. I find the evidence of Scripture persuasive. I see the, the virgin birth and the crucifixion. I see these things written centuries ahead of time and then fulfilled in Christ. I find that persuasive. And uh, certainly a lot more evidence than... than uh, the whole Big Bang Theory and the, the goo to you by way of the zoo, that whole thing. On what evidence? And I agree with Norm Geisler, I don't have enough faith to believe that much on so little evidence. All right. We have confidence. We have uh, strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And we'll deal with that next as we look at verses 19 and 20. The hope which is an anchor. The hope that gives us stability. Not because it's a wishful hope someday, a hope. No, presently, today, I am clinging to that living hope. It's a present reality. I'm going to totally realize and personally absorb the future glory in present time. How about in chapter 7, verse 19? And we haven't gotten this far yet, but we've got these things coming up. <clears throat> and a lot of Melchizedek information in this chapter. And so, I mean, there's certain things that are just obvious, right? It goes without saying. In verse 14, it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. That's pretty clear. Any debates, any, ob you know, any objection to stating the obvious? Our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. <laughs> Look all you want, there is no priesthood of Judah in, in the Old Testament. And it's clearer still if another priest arises according to the, order of, according to the likeness of Melchizedek. So that's obvious. This is obvious. What are we looking at? Who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. That's us. That's him. That's us. What a glory. 
Our Savior is the high priest for that indestructible life. What's the kind of life we received? An indestructible life? The Zoe life of our eternal life? And in this, as eternal life recipients, with a high priest seated at the Father's right hand, being baptized into union with Him, we have this priesthood. The basis, not of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. On the one hand, in verse 18, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of former commandment because of its weak weakness and uselessness. Do you really want to go back to a Levitical priesthood when you have the Melchizedek priesthood? Are you kidding me? It's like you want to go back to horse and buggy when you've got a Ford Mustang convertible? What do you, I mean, what do you want to do? Seriously. All right. <laughs> You want to go back to the Levitical priesthood and and we have this indestructible life in the Melchizedek priesthood. For the law made nothing perfect. (laughs) Nobody was ever perfected by Mosaic law. The best law keeper in the world was not perfected by the law. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God inasmuch as it was not without an oath. And so it's quite significant. Mosaic law was given with an oath, so God gives this with an oath. Inasmuch as it was not without an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath. But he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So take Psalm 110. Understand that oath that he makes to Jesus as the priest of Melchizedek and realize, wow, our priesthood is so much greater than Aaron or his sons or anything else. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. All right. So that's uh, verse 19. There's also verse 25. Verse 23 says, The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. (laughs) well, you know, what are you going to do? Aaron's dead. All right, here comes Eliezer. What are you going to do? Eliezer's dead. All right, here's the next guy. We'll just go to the next guy, go to the next guy, go to the next guy. And by the time you get to the Roman era, it's all corrupt because you have Romans making appointments. And they're buying and trading and there's all kinds of corruption in the priesthood there. Anyway, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we have saved to the uttermost and he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. This high priest is not going away. This high priest is eternally ours. Saved to the uttermost. Chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 22 For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form or the very substance of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Law can't do that. Law never could do that. Law was never designed to do that. To make perfect. Okay? Were you with us last hour? Did you hear that make perfect class from Philippians? That's what we're doing. 
God's making us perfect. He's perfecting us. The whole perfection of our maturity in, in Christ. And could the law do that? The same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year? Well, which one of them's going to stick? Which one of them's good enough? <laughs> you know? By the time you're, whatever, 70, 80 years old, uh, you've gone through that Day of Atonement lots and lots of times. W- which one finally is good enough? In fact, maybe you've lived through a high priest or two or three. You know, is any of them going to finally offer a Day of Atonement sacrifice for you that's going to get her done? No. That's the point. The same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, none of them can make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered? You know, we'd be done by now if one of them worked. None of them worked. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So each year they go through the ritual again. Each year the shadows represent the doctrine that the reality is not yet fulfilled. There is coming a Messiah. A Messiah is coming and He will fulfill these realities. In those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're just visual aids. They're representations. They're teaching aids. It's shadow typology. Don't confuse the ritual with the reality. But Jesus comes to fulfill. Jesus comes to fulfill. That's what this is about. So when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The angel of the Lord couldn't get it done either. It had to be the God-man, the Word made flesh in humanity, true humanity embodied as He was in the manger, virgin-born. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And so He's come to do His will. His will is finishing this work. He's going to say, Tetelestai, it is finished. The shadows are revealed in the substance. The Father is satisfied. Down to verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Once for all. Okay? Ooh, that would be a good hymn of the month. Once for all. I love that hymn. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. See, all they did was cover. All they did was atone. Kafar is a cover, an atonement. Doesn't take away, doesn't remove, just puts a cover on it. The sins are covered so he can pass over. Hello, Passover, but it's not removed. It's not taken away. It's not eternally forgiven and dealt with. Not until Calvary. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. He is seated. We have this advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, once and for all. And this is, uh, this is the glory here. 
For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We don't have to re-crucify him over and over again. The Catholic Mass is re-crucifying him again and again and again, putting the body and the blood in the... What is this? No, once and for all he is done, it is finished. And so, verse 18, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's not a threat. That's not a scare passage. That's a promise. That's a comforting passage. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because he offered the once and for all. So we have confidence. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, every right to be there. We march on in there, heads held high. We're there by a new and living way. We're not going to kill anything to get in there. It's a living sacrifice. We ourselves are living sacrifices. A new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith. This is us. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sins. We have a present reality. We're not just Old Testament saved. Old Testament sins atoned for, covered over. Old Testament saved, going to go to Abraham's bosom when we die. Oh no. We're going to heaven when we die. Absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Because our sins are not just covered, our sins are removed. We are washed clean. So we draw near, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. See this intersection of holding fast and drawing near? Let us hold fast. We're not talking about going to heaven when we die. We're talking about today, right here, right now, in the Holy of Holies, worshiping, praising, serving. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He's not a liar. He can't lie and he took an oath. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. These are our prime priesthood functions. We pray, we praise. The priestly function of prayer, the priestly function of praise, the priestly function of thanksgiving, the priestly function of worship. The priestly function of goading our fellow priests. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And we all get to prod and poke. That's our priesthood. Stimulating. I stimulate you, you stimulate me. We all stimulate all of us. Each one of us. Everybody. Not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some not forsaking our episunagoge, as is the habit of some. There's so much more here than just quit skipping church. <laughs> this is the episunagoge, is the, the ultimate gathering. This is when the bride of Christ is gathered for the first time ever in totality. Most of the bride isn't even on earth anymore. We've got 20 centuries of the bride that's already in heaven. We just have this current generation that's still on earth. When will the bride be complete? When will the total church be assembled? What building can house us <laughs> on this earth? Okay. 
Ah, well, we're not going to meet in a building. We're going to meet in the air. The totality of the bride meeting the Lord in the air. It's called an episunagoge. It's only used twice. It's only used here and it's only used in 2 Thessalonians where it's obviously a rapture context. I think this one's also a rapture context because of that use and because of this context. So let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day. What day? If that's not rapture doctrine, then what day could this be? As you see the day drawing near. There's no other day in in context of 19 through 25 unless the episunagoge is rapture of the church. And so we encourage one another and all the more. Today we're going to encourage one another. We're going to have a potluck dinner. We're going to sit down. We're going to encourage one another. To what? Love and good deeds as the rapture draws near. Today could be the last day anyway. The trumpet can sound before, uh, before the sun sets today. So we should be encouraging one another to love and good deeds. That's uh, our priestly function in the Holy of Holies. All right. We're almost done with chapter 6. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It's really fun. Dude, between now and next Sunday, look up the word anchor. And you'll find it comes from a Latin word that looks just like anchor. Which comes from a Greek word which looks just like anchor. And you wonder, did anybody ever translate this thing? Or they just copied the letters across and made it a word. It's an anchor. And we know what an anchor is. It provides stability. And we have an anchor of the soul, which is a good thing. Because this world is like waves crashing everywhere. But we're not tossed. We're not tossed like newborn babes. We're not tossed by waves and winds of doctrine. We have stability. And I would put forth on the basis of this passage that, that the true stability for church-age saints comes when they fully embrace the Melchizedek priesthood. The reality of who we are in Christ functioning in the Melchizedek priesthood of the church age. The greatest stability for church-age provision is right here. An anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. So anchor is a stability term. Sure is a stability term. Steadfast is a stability term. Why is God giving me three stability terms in the same verse? Well, it sounds pretty stable to me. Within the soul. One that enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for this book. I pray that the realities of this book will become personal realizations for each one of us. I pray that not only will we comprehend it, but that we would fully embrace every dimension of truth that, that you reveal to us, Father. That we would embrace fully on a subjective, personal basis the full assurance of hope today, tomorrow, every day until the end, until that trumpet sounds. When, uh, as the hymns like to say, faith gives way to sight. And uh, we will believe it and see it simultaneously. Oh, that it were today. Father, I thank you for the depths of this teaching. And I pray for diligence moving forward. We were already warned, Father, that Melchizedek teaching is not for the slow of hearing. 
It's not for um, the babes that are just nursing at the breast. Father, um, Melchizedek teaching is, is meat and uh, it's stability for mature believers, maturing believers. And so I pray as we wrap up chapter 6 and move into chapter 7 that, that this congregation will be ready to receive what you're ready to feed them. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will.